Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Mackenzie campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. At the end of our Summer Psalms series today and just uh, looking at how the Psalms have blessed people. I mean, these Psalms have been almost a script for people for thousands of years as we've prayed them, as we've read them, as they've met us in our time of need, as they've given us language to be able to use and speak to God uh, in our times of lament, in our times of loss, in our times of grief, but also in our times of praise and our worship. You know, we sing the words of the Psalms. They have almost become the narrative of our Christian walk. And out of the 150 Psalms, there's 50 of them uh, just over 40, actually, that David wrote himself. And David is an interesting character because unlike a lot of the characters of the Bible, we actually get to get in behind the scenes on David's life. In fact, I'd probably say this to you, who would want to be David? David as a life has been lived on the pages of the Bible. We are seeing his failures. We've seen the the travesty of his poor decisions. We've seen his sin. We've seen his lament. It's all splashed across the pages of the Bible. And then we see, of course, him in his times of, of great strength where he declares and writes amazing text about the glory and the power of God. But David's life is exposed and transparent for all of us to see. The great thing about that, though, I think, is it gives us heart because David was very human. David made a lot of very human mistakes. David did some things that, you know, I think if he had his time again, he'd never do them again. He has his regrets. He lived in a way that he tried to live his best for God but stumbled many times. And I read David, when I see David's life, I get hope that it's, I'm going to be okay. I get a sense, I get some encouragement that if David and God loved David that much, then maybe God can love me too. This morning, I'd love us to look at the life of David. In fact, I probably even called this message, How God Formed David. Because David learnt how to walk with God and then David wrote about what he learnt. So we get the opportunity to actually see some patterns, some stepping stones, some principles of what David built his, how David built his life and how God taught him to walk with him. I think David worked out fairly early that it's very different to, than, to love God than it is to trust God. I can love God. I can love God because he is my, my redeemer. He is my friend. He is my God. He watch over me. He's my shepherd. We could go through all of the things of the names of God. He is all those things. And David knew that. And David loved God. And David loved him from an early age. But David struggled to trust God. And I think that's true for us as Christians. I think our challenge is in the Christian life is not so much to love God because the story of all that God's done for us overwhelms our heart. His extravagant love is easy to see and it's easy to fall in love with God. But trusting God is a very different thing. Trust, it's something that we talk about as Christians. We talk about almost as Christian ease that, you know, we, we want to trust God. But actually trusting God is very hard. It's very hard because trusting God is the point where I leave the bit that I know and I step out on the water to the bit I don't know. 
And in that transition between what I know to what I don't know, I've got to trust God. And trust doesn't feel good in here. Trust is hard to do. Trust is about suspending my judgments. Trust is about quietening my mind that wants to go, you know, a thousand beats a minute. Trust involves me not strategizing and trying to work things out and trying to overcalculate and overthink. Trust involves me taking my expectations and placing them in a different place maybe than where I thought they should be. Trust confronts my hope. It rattles me. It shakes me and it requires me to surrender something inside that I've been hanging on to before but I actually can't take into my next season. And David knew all this. And David wrote about it. And I think this morning, my hope is that we could learn something from him. And somehow or other, we could grow in our relationship with God. I wonder if you could just turn with me to Psalm 27. There are probably a number of Psalms we could have chosen this morning. We have looked at Psalm 27 before, but I want to look at a slightly different aspect of the Psalm as we go through David's life a little bit. Psalm 27 and verse 1, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but just let these words wash over you as David writes about God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked come against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. Just jump with me to verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, David writes. Lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then David says, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. See, most theologians would say that he wrote this towards the end of his life. Although as Jason sort of said last week, it's kind of hard to pin it down, but it looks like he may have. It seems like he's looking back and speaking about the things that he discovered that were true and powerful for him. And he's written them down and said, this is the way I found God in the midst of my crisis. And he had plenty of them. But this is how I found God. David knew that the ways of God could be trusted. David knew at the end of his life that God does produce strength inside our life when we lean on him. He knew at the end of his life that God's ways create breakthrough. But he didn't always know it on the way through. And isn't that true for you and I? It's it's a lot easier to look back and see the hand of God. But when we're in the middle of something, when the crisis is there, when the accusing voice is there, when the enemy is around, when there seems like there's every possibility I could stumble, that's the moment that we want to feel the confidence of God. 
isn't it? That's when we really want the strength of God to be alive to me. So that as I'm trusting God, I'm not just sort of doing it in this place where fear is encamping around me, but I'm doing it from a place of confidence and faith. David worked out how to find that place in God. We see it in his story. You know, you, you remember, just, just walk with me through David's story for a minute. Samuel comes to the house of Jesse because God sent him there. And when he comes to the house of Jesse, he is to anoint the new king of Israel. But bear in mind, the existing king is still alive. So this is politically challenging, you'd have to agree. The Samuel, who is the prophet of the nation, is looking for a new king. He goes to the house of Jesse and there as all the boys are lined up and he goes one down the line, not this one, not that one, not this one, not that one. He gets to the end of the line he says, are there any more sons? Jesse says, oh, there, there's David. He's out in the field. Well, go and get him. So he brings him in. David comes before him and as soon as Samuel lays his hand on him, God says, this is the one. And God says through Samuel, because God looks, doesn't look on the outside, God looks on the heart. And that's how we identified David. David obviously loved God. David had a place in his heart where he served God, where he, he sat with God and meditated with God. David was a shepherd, so David has, talks about how he used to kill the bear and the lion. He, he obviously learnt skills about how to be a good shepherd. He learnt his wits. I can imagine him using his wits to outfox lots of enemies that were trying to take the sheep. And I'm sure it wasn't just animals, but it would have been humans as well. David learnt some things. He was a wily, creative, obviously a leader of the future. But he was raw. He was just a boy. And the promise of God came to him. David had to wait 22 years for this promise to actually play itself out. 22 years. I don't know how long you're waiting for your promise right now, but David waited 22 years before he became king again. Well, not again, he became king. So the next time we pick up the story, David is now up against Goliath. He's, Goliath is standing there. He's speaking to the, to the children of Israel. And he's saying, you know, who will be my champion? Who will come up against me? And David, through a series of circumstances, confronts Goliath and says, you come against me with swords and spears, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. He's quite bold and he picks up the sling that he's learnt to use against bears and lions and he slays Goliath and cuts off his head. And David's famous. David gets, not only does he defeat Goliath, but he gets the spoils that were offered by King Saul. He gets to marry Michael. He gets the princess. He gets tax-free living for the rest of his life. He gets to come into the palace. He's the son-in-law of the king. Everything seems to be going swimmingly because the prophecy seems to be coming true, except there's this annoying bit that Jonathan, the son, is in there, which I'm not really sure he's thinking, how does all this work out? But I'm, anyway, somehow or other, I'm going to be king instead of Jonathan, but God's working it out. Have you ever been, tried to work out God's plan for you? you ever, has, has, it ever, has it ever looked exactly like you thought it would by the time you got there? Probably not. But David's in the palace. David's growing in stature. He's leading the army by day. Hundreds become thousands. Thousands become ten thousands. He's leading more people. He's growing in stature. At night time, he's playing the harp for his father-in-law, who's vexed by spirits and, 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 and insecurities. And somehow his father-in-law is soothed until the father-in-law starts throwing spears at him. 
Anyone had your father-in-law throw a spear at you yet just in the last week or two? I see that hand. No, I'm only kidding. Once the father-in-law is throwing spears at you, he's the king of Israel and is the most powerful man on the earth, it's time to run. So David runs home to Michael. But Saul sends the army to surround his house. Michael sees that, lets her husband down the back wall and he flees and he runs from the palace. And David runs first to Ramah. Now at Ramah is where Samuel is. This was the smartest thing that David ever did. He ran to Ramah. He ran to the guy that gave him the promise, the man of God. Because it looked a bit shaky right now that this promise was going to come to bear. Saul and his army were pursuing him. That's a shocking place to find yourself. But as he runs to Samuel, Saul hears that he's at Samuel at Ramah. And so he sends a garrison to go and get this boy. Can't be that hard. Except when the army arrived to get this boy, they get close to Ramah and they fall on the ground and start prophesying. So Saul says, well, that won't do. Let's send another garrison. So the next garrison gets sent and they get close to Ramah too and the Spirit of God falls and they start prophesying. So Saul says, well, that won't do. We'll send another garrison, which he does. The same thing happens and Saul says, forget it. I'll go myself, except he gets to Ramah and he falls on the ground and starts prophesying. See, God is protecting his anointed. If David had only stayed at Ramah, if David had stayed at Ramah, he would have been fine. But David didn't stay at Ramah. David ran. David left Ramah and he went to Nob. At Nob, that's where the high priest Elimelech was. This is the man of God. This is one man that's appointed over all of Jewish practice. He's there, at, he's there. his name's Elimelech and he's there at Nob. David goes to him, except when he arrives to Elimelech, Elimelech knows that David is the most wanted man in Israel. Elimelech says, what are you doing here? And David lies to the high priest. Never a good thing to do. He says, oh, I'm here on the king's business. He says, oh, really? He says, yes, do you have any food? And he says, well, only the showbread that is used on the altar. He says, oh, that'll do. Could I have the showbread, please? And he takes the bread and feeds all of his army. And he eats some himself. And then David says, do you have any weapons? David has crossed over now from walking in the spirit to walking in the natural. He's looking for a weapon. And Limelech says, well, you know I've got a weapon here. It's Goliath's. You took it from him. So David says, good, could you get it for me? There's none like it in the land, he says. Remember, this was the young man that only just recently said, you come against me with spears and swords, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Now he can't wait to get his hands on the sword because that's what he's going to use to protect himself. It's a natural fight now. He's fighting from his wits. He's thinking with his mind. What's the next step? He can hardly carry the jolly thing. It's so big. But he's got the sword. And he leaves Nob. The problem is, Saul hears he went to Nob and Saul sends the army and kills, he kills the entire priesthood, the high priest and all the other priests that gave solace to David, except one, Abiathar, the son, who was the next high priest. He escapes and finds David. Interestingly, just as a side note, David is going to be king and the next high priest, who was meant to be the next high priest, joins David as a fugitive. God 
manages to salvage the plan, but it's not the plan. And so David runs from Nob and he runs to Gath, Gath now. Gath is the capital of Philistia. It's the Philistines. This is the place that Goliath came from. David walks down the main street at, at Gath and he's a wanted man. People know him. He's a hero. He killed Goliath, but not at Philistia. There he is the most wanted man. He's wanted for the wrong reasons. And so people see him and they say, that's David. So they arrest him and take him to the king, King Ashish. King Ashish then puts him in front of him and he says, put him in the dungeon while I work out what to do. And then David writes this psalm. Go with me to Psalm 56. You don't need to be a theologian to know that. If you look at your Bible, you'll see after Psalm 56 in brackets, a mitchum of David when the Philistines captured him in Gath. So it's pretty easy. But he writes these words, Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day. For there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? All day they twist my words and all their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together, they hide, they mark my steps. When they lie in wait for my life, shall they escape by iniquity? In anger, cast down the peoples, O God. You put my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. In God, I will praise his word. In the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That all sounds good. See, David knew what he had to do. He just couldn't get his heart to do it. Because when he was dragged before the king then, he pretends to be mad. He feigns madness. He froths at the mouth. He throws himself on the ground. He's back on his wits again. He's back trying to work it all out. And he's a bit of an actor. Obviously, he's a bit creative. He plays a harp. He's probably got a little bit of theatre in him. And he was able to bring the theatre. And King Ashes looks at him and says, the guy's lost his mind. Of what use? Let's not bother with him. Throw him to the streets. And so David escapes. But not because... He puts his trust in God, not because he boldly declares, what can my enemies do to me? No, no, he feigns madness and he gets out. David was struggling to live. He knew what he had to do. He even wrote it down, but he couldn't get his heart to do it. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in that place where you know what it is to do, what you know you should do, but you just can't get your heart to quieten down long enough you just can't get your agitation, your, your anxiety. You just can't quite get your heart and mind to focus on what it is. Your obedience seems more difficult than you thought. It seems like it's too hard. Well, David knew that story. If you know that story, David knows that story. The tension between knowing what you should do than actually doing it. That's the tension of the Christian walk. But David learned that when you don't know what to do, you wait on God. He looked back over his life and he says, wait on the Lord. If you wait on the Lord, you will be encouraged. You will get strength. You will get the things you need, but you need to wait on the Lord. But David, as he was going through life, found it hard to wait on the Lord. What did David mean when he said, wait on the Lord? Well, the word wait, when David uses it, comes from 
a couple of different interpretations. There's actually two, two streams of definition we could look at, and they're both very helpful. The first meaning comes from three Hebrew words. We won't spend a lot of time in this, but it comes from words yachal, dumior, and korkor. And those words all mean the same thing. They mean still and quiet in the midst of pain. Still and quiet in the midst of pain. See, before anything can happen, before I can really encounter God, I've got to quieten the noise inside me. David had to quieten the noise inside him. There's a lot of noise. When you're trying to go through something, when there's a a challenge on your life, when there's an issue that you're facing, when there's something that you don't understand, when it's a dark valley you've got to walk through, There'll be lots of things you don't understand and your mind and your emotions will want to buzz around all the possibilities. But David knew that if he waited on the Lord, he had to first come to a place where he was still and quiet in the midst of the pain. Still and quiet. It means, church, this is a human process. Before God can speak to my heart, my heart's got to quieten to hear it. Be still and quiet, still and quiet in the midst of pain. I need to quiet my inner thoughts and emotions. How do I surrender my expectations and my inner striving? How do I release my need to do something and to soothe my desire for control? How do I do that? Well, I need to let the peace of God come. I need to sit and rest in God. I'm not really doing anything in that space except I'm getting rid of the clutter so that God can speak. And I I believe this is where the rubber hits the road. This is actually where we create the space for God to meet with us, where the human heart can meet with God. It's where God transforms the patterns of our heart in the stillness. David wrote in Psalm 139, how precious are also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. See, David caught a principle of God here, which would be good for us to catch this morning. He realised that actually the thoughts of God towards him were more numerous than the sand on the seashore. Can you imagine? If you took a handful of sand and tried to count how many grains are in there, could you imagine what number you might get to? And then throw the sand away and look at the seashore and start to imagine the thoughts of God towards you. See, David wasn't just writing lyrically. I think he was writing something that was true. The infinite God of heaven has got a million ideas for you about how you can go from where you are to where you need to be. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's got so many possibilities. Every one of them, he wants to speak to your identity. He wants to speak to your emotions. He wants to speak to your mind. He wants to give you the key to certain things. He may even talk to you about ways that you can connect with others, divine appointments, things you need to do, lots of things. If only we could hear God. See, David didn't think that was a theory about God. David knew as a reality, God is speaking. God is speaking. He's constantly speaking. He's always speaking. I can't count the thoughts that God is sending to me. But I've got to get to the place I can hear it. 
So the first part of waiting is surrender. Be still. Be still. The second part of this idea of wait is a word, a Hebrew word called korvor. David used this a lot. It actually speaks to process now. This word actually means to twist and bind together. If I pop on the screen just this photo of this rope, it's a little bit like a rope or a vine, if you can imagine those two examples. It means the same thing. It's the idea that you can take a strand and twist it around another strand and twist it around another strand, and as a result of that, the strength of the whole unit gets bigger. And so David's speaking about process here. Once I'm still and quiet, now I'm going to go through an exchange of my strength for God's strength, my thoughts for his thoughts, my definitions and expectations for his expectations, God's read on what's happening and now my read on what's happening. I'm going to swap it. I'm going to let the exchange happen. It's like a vine that, that curls itself up a tree. You see them in the forest. You know, they, it draws the life out of the tree in order for it to grow. Now, the example's not perfect because it ends up killing the tree. And obviously, we don't end up killing God because God's eternal. But it's the same idea. We're drawing the life of God off him as we climb and we find the canopy of the forest. That's the picture of this idea of twining ourselves or binding ourselves to God. You know, I get the opportunity to speak to a bunch of young adults. I lead a life group. There's probably 30, 35 young people connected to this and there's a bunch of others connected peripherally. And I get the opportunity to be in a lot of conversations with them about life and how that's going. And one of the things I find a lot that happens in young adults is that they make a lot of promises to God that they break. In other words, God, I won't think that way anymore. I won't do that anymore. I'll change that habit. I'll be more attentive to reading my Bible. I'll do this. I'll do that. And yet within a short period of time, the promise that they made then gets forgotten and they feel guilty again that they haven't done it. And loaded under this guilt, they go disappearing for a little while and then somehow they come back and they come back to God, they come back to church, and there's kind of this sort of cycle that happens. And I've learned as I've watched them, and I don't think it's just young adults that experience this, it's easy to confuse letting yourself down and letting God down. See, you can't let God down. God, you can't disappoint God. Jason said it last week. You can't disappoint God. God's never disappointed in you. He is a good father. He loves you. He sees all that you are and calls you into that all the time, Every single moment of the day, every thought that comes to you from God is about drawing you into the next season of hope, every time. But we get disappointed in ourselves. We make the promise to God, and when we don't fulfil it, we're disappointed. And somehow or other, we want to project that disappointment onto God and say, well, God's disappointed with me. No, it's not. And see, can you see the human process of disappointment has to be laid down if I'm going to have intimacy with God because while I feel disappointed or while God, I think God's disappointed with me, I'll never hear his voice because he's disappointed in me. I won't even talk to him because he's disappointed in me. But we're projecting something onto God that's not true. And so we walk in this humanness before God and God's calling us into a spirituality 
He's saying, no, that's not me. Get into my flow and you'll hear my voice. Stand on my truth and you'll hear my voice. Understand who I am and understand who you are before me and you'll hear my voice. I'll revolutionise the way you see yourself in my presence. That's what God wants to do. There's others that I'd talk to and they'd, they'd say, I feel like God's given me a promise. I really felt like God did. It was a scripture. Or maybe someone spoke over my life. I've just had a sense that this is the way God's called me to go. But it feels like it's just not taking shape. It's not coming to pass. You know, what have I done to offend God? And again, we take these human emotions and we project them onto an eternal God. We want our timing to validate the promise of God. So because it's not coming in my timing, then God didn't promise me. No. See, that's where being still is important. We've got to get rid of our thinking and allow God to exchange our thinking for his thinking. If God's promised you, he will never fail you. You will have what he promises. He will give it to you. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Be still before him. And exchange the way you think for the way that God thinks. I love the words of Isaiah, Isaiah 55 and verse 8. And this is God speaking through Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there but waters the earth and makes it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it can accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. You think about these two examples. God is speaking through Isaiah. God is speaking through David. He, this is a picture now of rain falling from heaven and every, every single drop of rain that falls to the ground represents the words of God that are coming at you. David saw them as sand on the seashore. Isaiah is interpreting them as rain that comes from heaven. Either way, you can't count them. Either way, it's, not, it's always productive. It's always going to hit the ground and produce something. It's always going to. And see, that's the nature and the character of the God that we're putting our trust in. And so we've got to get rid of our human view of things and allow the eternal view to get into our head so that it resets us and we reinterpret. Now, it's hard. That's the problem. We're walking to the edge of trust now and we're saying everything I know that's human is here and everything that I don't know that God's calling me to, I don't have experience in. Now I've got to trust. So why does David say wait? Because you've got to teach your soul to wait. Your soul needs to learn it. God is faithful, but I panic if I don't think he's heard me. But I panic if I'm not sure that he's with me. But I panic if it's not quite working out like I thought. But I panic if I'm really not, is God actually working the details out or should I take over? And now we're in the crucible of trust. David was there. But God's ways are his words. See, they're the ways of God. And God's words are promises. 
See, when God speaks words, they're contracts. They're contracts to you. They're not just glib. They're not just hyperbole. They are contracts. And God wants us to know his ways. Jesus gave us the same picture, the picture of the vine and the branch. In John 15, it says this, I am the vine, Jesus is speaking, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. No, no, wait a minute. But I've done lots of things without God. So have you. But what Jesus is saying is the eternal things that last forever, the ways of the kingdom, the stuff that I'm building my church in, the stuff that will never wash away, the stuff that the devil can never claim, that stuff, the eternal stuff, that's the stuff that when my words are in you, you will always build it. See, without those words, you'll do a whole bunch of things, but it's all to nothing. It all washes away in the end. It all, in the end, it doesn't matter. But whatever you do in my name, whatever you do through me, that lasts forever. So that's why Jesus says, without me, you'll do nothing because the good stuff, the real stuff that gets done in the spirit is done through him. That's the stuff that lasts. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you'll be my disciples. If we could just pop that picture up of the, oh, it's there. <laughs> we did this at eight, didn't we? That's right. If you look very carefully at the, at the vine and the branch, there's an imperceptible time where the vine becomes a branch. It's like it just does. If you look at it closely, you'll see the main stem, but then it branches out into branches and then is that a branch now or is that a vine? And then it branches into more. And is that a branch or is that a vine? Like the vine gets lost and the branches get lost, but the fruit sits on the end of the branches. See, Jesus is giving us a very purposeful metaphor because what he's saying is people are going to start to get confused. Is it Jesus or is it you? Is it Jesus or is it you? Because you're drawing your life from the vine, but the fruit that's coming off the branch is the fruit that remains. It's the fruit that comes from heaven. But it's going to come, and out of your life is going to come a new tributary because someone else is going to connect to you and you'll disciple someone else. And then there's a new branch and there's a new, it comes, the vine is still the vine, but the branches are eternal. And off they go. And we're drawing the life off the vine so that the branches can be productive. That's the picture. It's the same picture that David had. It's the same picture that Paul has. It's the picture of the Christian life. The flow of Jesus' words in our life produce the fruit. It's the words that fall from heaven that we hear. It's the words that don't return void. It's the truckload of sand. It's all of that. It's, it's those words. And so what, what, why am I saying that? Is because in order for us to wait on the Lord, we've got to have confidence that those words exist and they're flowing to you. Otherwise, see, that's the truth that we anchor ourselves to. God will speak to me. He's already talking to me. I just can't hear him. I will be still until I do. I will be still until I do. I'll be still until I do. Because he's talking to me. See, God will not withhold his words from you. God is not holding his words back because he's trying to teach you something. 
Far from it. In fact, he's trying to teach you by getting you to hear his words and obey them. That's how he teaches you. He doesn't teach you by holding his words. He gives you his word and says, obey it. That's the lesson, not the withholding. God does not withhold. He just wants us to flow in obedience. Whatever you're facing today, whatever that is, there'll be a bunch of different things in this room I know. Online, those that are listening, whatever your walk is today, God is not saying to you, do nothing. When David writes, wait on the Lord, that's not a command to do nothing. What what it really is, is do God things. Do God type of things. That's what waiting on the Lord is, so that I can reproduce God things in my life. And as I do, I get into a flow. As I do, what happens is I start to watch God working in my life and I grow in confidence in my walk with God. Because now my testimony is building every time I step out with God and trust him, every time I hear his word and he does something and I obey him, I stretch in faith. Yes, I grow, but then I have a testimony because now there's something God's done for me. And I can say, well, he did it then. Maybe he'll do it again. And if I have another opportunity, he'll do it again. And he did it again and he's done it again. And so what am I building? I'm building my testimony of faith. It's why in Revelation, John writes, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Because if I know God won't fail me, if I know that, then I can wave my finger at the enemy and say, God won't fail me. How do I know that? Because my testimony says. And so God leads us from faith to faith to faith to faith. This is the walk of the Spirit. And God wants to teach us how to do it. God wanted to teach David how to do it. And so we sign up like thousands and millions and millions and millions have done for that journey to walk with God. What a privilege. Could we pray together? God, we thank you that we call to mind this morning that you are with us. And God, when we say that, we are calling into our prayer all of our awareness of who you are to the best of our ability. You, the infinite God, and us, quite finite, but we call into our mind the idea that faithfulness is beyond our comprehension when you're modelling it. But God, your faithfulness means you are present. Your faithfulness means that you are speaking to us. Your faithfulness means you have a pathway for our feet to trod. You have a sure and certain way for us to go. And we can trust that way. God, I pray that you would encourage every heart today. Every every inner life, God, that today needs to be encouraged and strengthened. Would you strengthen them today? Would they draw a boldness and a confidence from knowing that God is with them and answering their prayer? God, we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If you've made a decision to follow Christ, we would love to encourage you on your journey. 
Help us help you by going to gatewaybaptist.com.au and clicking on Get Connected.